Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 596. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. From guess what? A wet afternoon. There's a surprise. Hey, I'll tell you what's coming today's show. First up is the main fiction rowboat by K.G. Anderson. And E.B.H. Sturgis takes up to the mic as well with her looking back at genre history. That's all coming today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. And apologies if you can hear little scrape and chewing noises. It's the pup Daisy. It's the only way I can keep her just quiet for five minutes. Oh, man, it's hard work. Right, we'll jump straight into the kind of main fiction. And like I say, it is K.G. Anderson's Rowboat, originally published in Metamorphosis. K.G. Anderson is a Seattle-based writer, gardener, dancer and cat herder. Her stories or short stories have appeared or are forthcoming in magazines and anthologies ranging from Galaxy's Edge and Weird Book to BQ Press Alternate Truth Series and are online at Factor 4 Magazine and Farfetched Fables. She narrated Starships over 530, The Stone Age Gap, KG is a graduate of the Variable Paradise and Towers Toolbox Workshop, and you can find her online at... And there's a link there if you would care to go over and say hello to KG. Now, this story is narrated by Farah Nazrashi, who is a Pakistani-American Muslim writer and voice actor. But in another life, she works stints as a lawyer, a video game journalist, and editorial assistant. She received her BA in English from Bear Mare College. I, don't, I think that's how you pronounce it. And her JD from Lewis and Clark Law School. And of love of weaving stories from the Odyssey Writing Workshop. When she's not writing, she's probably hanging out with video game characters. You can find her at Phil at Home in Philadelphia or on Twitter as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Rowboat by K.G. Anderson. Read by Farah Naz Rishi. I've never seen an ocean, but I grew up playing rowboat in my family's cramped living module on level C of Shinchen Colony. The worn blue carpet was the water, the concrete floor beyond it a sandy shore. With a broomstick as an oar, I pretended I was my grandma Jen back on earth, rowing hard against the tide to get us home. Now I watched as my half-sib Ricky, dad and Cece's son, Listen to Mom tell the Grandma Jen stories I'd loved. 
Grandma Jen wanted us to know about beaches and the sea, Mom said. One afternoon, we found an abandoned rowboat, and she took us out on San Francisco Bay. It was during the Fourth Earth War. A government patrol nearly caught us. Mom paused, out of breath, leaning back in the faded chair, propped up by a thin pillow. Like many of Shinshin Colony pioneers, Mom had ignored the dangers of radiation to build our station on Ceres. Now she had only a few days left. Then what happened? Ricky asked. Mom, her hand to her chest, looked over at me. So I stepped in and finished the story she told me so many times when I was a kid. Grandma Jen hit the boat behind an abandoned freighter, I said. By the time the patrol boat passed, the tide had turned, but she rowed everyone back to shore and beached the boat just as the sun went down. Mom nodded. Thank you, Maya. I hope you and Ricky will always remember that story. And remember your Grandma Jen. With time running out, Mom was telling us all the stories of Earth again. How she'd volunteered to come to Ceres on an early migration mission. How Grandma Jen had encouraged her every step of the way. Your Grandpa Peter didn't want me to go, but Grandma Jen told him she believed I had it in me to be a pioneer, Mom said. So, did Maya's... Ricky hesitated, looking for a word we didn't use much on Ceres. Did Maya's grandmother want to someday live here with us? Ricky was playing soldiers on the floor using my old armies of hex nuts and bolts. He sounded doubtful. Mom and the other pioneers were the only ones who talked about Earth. Our teachers always told us to focus on the future, instead. Ricky, there was a time when we thought we'd complete all the asteroid colonies and time for our families on Earth to migrate, Mom said. And... Maybe we could have, but no one expected the last war, or at least how terrible the last war would be. Everyone who stayed on Earth, including Maya's grandmother and grandfather, died. Ricky shrugged and went back to advancing a line of hex nuts towards a regiment of bolts. I knew how he felt. In spite of Mom's stories and the vids they showed us in school, for those of us born on Ceres, so much of the Earth stuff seemed unreal. At Earth-16, I was long past my days of playing rowboat on the carpet. Last year, I'd moved from my family's living module into the first-gen dorms five levels down. The Shinshin pioneers had decided that their children should be weaned away from them, taught to focus on the long-term survival of the colony, and prepared to be assigned to other colonies on other asteroids. We'd formed new families and have our children there. My assignment could come any day now, as soon as the next freighter arrived. My throat tightened when I thought about how I'd never see Saris or my family again. Mom was asking Ricky a question about school. I wanted to tell her that I dreamed about Grandma Jen and Grandpa Peter, that my battered tablet had a copy of the one picture we had of them, taken when they were only a few years older than me. I looked at the picture almost every night. In it, they wore the bright, sleek clothing of the 2070s. They were picnicking with friends in a park. Grandma Jen, dark and lively, Grandpa Peter, tall and thin, a bridge, the Golden Gate, Mom called it, spanning the sparkling blue water behind them. I'd seen it in Earth movies. In my dreams, I was Jen. I drove a vehicle, a car, with the windows open, across the Golden Gate Bridge, the blue water rippling below and green forests rising beyond. Because of Mom's stories, I could imagine it all. Trees, oceans, rain, Earth gravity, the wonders of atmosphere— I smiled to feel the pull of Earth all the way out here on Ceres, tugging me towards the planet where Mom and Dad and Cece had been born. But Earth wasn't just millions of miles away. Thanks to the last war, everything on it was rubble. The Earth they showed us in pictures and videos existed only in my dreams. 
Mom, why don't we have more pictures of Grandma Jen and Grandpa Peter? She flinched and swallowed hard. Pill, Maya? As I handed her the medication, voices from the living room told me that Dad and Cece were back. Ricky jumped up and ran out to greet them. Mom dozed off. I could hardly stand to look at her slumped in her chair. I knew she was getting weaker. I'd heard Cece say that she'd reached the point where there'd be more bad days than good. Yesterday, a glass bottle filled with a pale green liquid had appeared in our refrigerator, labeled with Mom's name, the cocktail. Mom would be confronting death as fearlessly as she confronted everything else. She expected us to, as well. I didn't dare disappoint her. A soft knock on the bedroom door. Another one of the pioneers wanted to say goodbye, Edison Kang, and I nodded a silent greeting as we exchanged places. I tried not to shudder as his arm brushed against me. Mr. Kang had many of the early signs of radiation sickness, limp gray hair, creased and wrinkled skin, and ugly lesions. I dropped my gaze. Raised in the safety of the Shinshin compound, I could not imagine him and Mom working for years on the asteroid surface in the original flex suits. But they had. All to make Shinshin our home. That night, I dreamed I was rowing a boat through space, searching for a shore. Earth shone bright in the vast emptiness and possibly far away. I had to get there. Grandma Jen was waiting for me. I woke, soaked in sweat and burning with an idea. After morning classes, I looked for McKella Clark. Michaela was smart, but not well-liked or trusted, usually someone to avoid, but I'd overheard her bragging about hacking into the intercolony databases, and that was what I needed. Is it true they've found more Earth data? I asked. Michaela's green eyes lit up. Two of the other colonies had it all along. They weren't sharing, but now the Shinshin Council has it. She grinned. The security guys haven't opened up general access yet. They say they have to review it, but people like me can get around that. I want to look for some images. Family stuff. Nothing classified. She pulled me into an alcove where we wouldn't be overheard. You came to the right person. I could get you in through a workstation in the admin section. Tonight? I swallowed hard. I had never broken the rules before. Michaela flipped her long braid back over her shoulder. Sure, why not? That night, I followed Michaela through a maze of hallways. She used someone else's override codes on the doors. Won't they know someone was here? They have to record anyone who comes in. Michaela laughed. They don't check the records, and if they do, someone else will get blamed. Who? You don't need to know. By the time we slipped into the cramped office deep in the admin sector, I felt sick to my stomach, but it was too late to stop. Michaela pulled an old data pad from a drawer, connected it to the system, and attached my data card that held the images of Grandma Jen and Grandpa Peter. Sure enough, Shinshin Colony's network now had the Earth archives we were told were lost or held in secret by one of the other colonies. With Michaela's help, I searched several of the databases with facial recognition software. My first hit was a low-res image of Grandpa Peter. He was older, handsome but worried-looking, just as Mom had said— He'd been an official in a California city called Palo Alto. But the matches for Grandma Jen's face showed someone else named Elizabeth Washington, a music professor in Georgia. I frowned. From Earth Studies class, I knew Georgia was nowhere near Palo Alto. So where was Grandma Jen? I searched for Grandpa Peter's name plus Jen, Jennifer, and Jean. Nothing. Real estate data from Palo Alto paired his name with a Margaret Dempster. His sister? His mother? Michaela fidgeted at my side, not as confident as she'd seen before. When I typed in Margaret Dempster, a news story appeared. I saw the words arson conviction, 
Before I could read more, an orange bar flashed at the top of the data screen. Michaela grabbed my arm. We gotta go, we've been spotted. In the hallway, an alarm shrilled. Cursing, Michaela yanked out my data card, logged out of the pad, and shoved it back into the drawer. Dashing after her as she retraced our path, I saw her ditch my data card in the corner of a dark stairwell, figuring I guessed that when they found it, I'd be the one blamed for the break-in. I stopped to snatch up the card and nearly missed catching the door she keyed opened. I'd been stupid to trust Michaela. Sure enough, there was trouble. You went looking for Grandma Jen. It wasn't a question. Mom beckoned to me from her narrow bed. I'm sorry. Michaela and I had been caught on the admin network, and they told not just Dad, but Mom. I'd hoped I'd find something to make me feel better, but all I'd done was make my mother feel worse. I'm sorry, I said again. No, Maya, Mom said. It's my fault. My eyes went wide. This didn't sound like my mother. I hoped you'd never find out, she said. So many records were lost in the migrations and the war, but I guess they're finding some of the data can be recovered. I should have told you. Mom, I didn't find anything, I lied. Just a picture of Grandpa Peter from his job. Mom gave a clipped laugh devoid of humor. She reached for a cup of tea from the bedside table and took a sip. I watched her trembling hand and tried not to show my confusion. Maya, you didn't find anything because there's nothing to find. There is no Grandma Jen, never was. What? Mom, sitting on the edge of her narrow bed, flinched. If there's no Grandma Jen... My mind spun with possibilities. Was I adopted? But you're still my mother? She reached out her thin arms and I knelt beside the bed to be hugged. Oh, Maya, of course I'm your mother. Relief poured through me. After a minute, I felt Mom square her shoulders. I settled cross-legged on the floor and waited, shivering. Mom was getting ready to tell me, once again, that things weren't as frightening as they sounded. Maya, I invented Grandma Jen. I need to tell you why. Mom hugged herself as if she were cold. I reached for a blanket to cover her, but she waved me away. I'm afraid the story starts with Margaret Dempster. She... She was my... She stopped, worked her lips, and continued. She was the woman people would say is my mother. Her tone turned as grim as I'd ever heard it. My stomach twinged. Margaret Dempster, the one who set the fire, was my grandmother? Margaret was... <sighs> Mom sighed and shook her head, casting about for words. I know now that she was mentally ill, but when I was a child... All I knew is that my brother and I seemed to get punished no matter what we did, and my father, well, he loved us, but he just couldn't admit that there was anything wrong. He couldn't protect us from her. Your uncle and I left home as soon as we finished high school. She looked me in the eye and continued. I thought that, simply by coming to Saris, as far away as anyone could get during the first migration, I'd solved my problems. And, in a sense, I had. Our work building, Shinshin Colony, was important. Far more important than anything I could have done on Earth. I met Cece and your father. We all were in love, and... Maya, we were so happy. A smile lit her face and eyes. I don't think you can even imagine what our lives were like. Her smile faded. Then, the last war. Only six days, but when it ended, everyone on Earth was gone, and we were alone in space. Six colonies on three asteroids. Two of the colonies failed, one from starvation. I nodded. 
They told us this over and over again in school, but what did this have anything to do with Grandma Jen? We were focused on mining, agriculture, manufacturing, and production of everything we needed to survive, including children. With no more migrations from Earth, it became crucial for the colonies to have children before we got too much radiation. That's when I began to have nightmares. I dreamed that I'd had a baby, and when I took the baby in my arms, I turned into Margaret. I dreamed that I hated my baby. Once I dreamed that I was lighting a fire. I shuddered. Mom didn't know that I knew about the arson. Tears rolled down her skeletal cheeks. Her head fell forward. Her thin, lesioned hands covered her face and fell to her lap. Maya, I would wake up from those dreams knowing that something was terribly wrong with me. My friends were having children. They loved those children. I saw Edison Kang holding Leah when she was born. I couldn't imagine ever feeling love like that. I was a sick, broken person, and I didn't want anyone to find out. I turned my head so Mom wouldn't see the tears rolling down my cheeks. Mom, why didn't Grandpa Peter help you when you were a kid? Why didn't he divorce her and take you away? Maya, I've asked myself those questions a thousand times. We'll never know. Mom put her ravaged hand on my arm and gently shook me as if to wake me up. Let me tell you about the picture. Mom stretched out her hand for the battered data tablet on the table by her bed. I handed it to her, and with a few taps, she brought up the picture of the young couple at the Golden Gate, the two I thought of as Grandma Jen and Grandpa Peter. I stared at the striking young woman and thought, Elizabeth Washington. This photo saved me, Mom said. I found it in a digital album my dad had given me years before, when I left Earth. I'd never bothered to look at it. I thought he'd just given me a lot of images of nature and landscapes in case I never came back. After the last war, when he was dead... Then, of course, I looked at the album. I came across this picture, recognized him, and I looked at the metadata. It was taken in 2071, two years before he married Margaret. I realized that my father had wanted me to know about that beautiful moment in his life. He wanted to send that woman, whoever she was, with me into the future. I sat on the bed beside Mom and saw the picture as I'd never had before. The woman looking at the camera while Grandpa Peter held her hand and gazed at her as if she were the most precious thing in the world. What had happened to separate them? That's Elizabeth, I said. Mom, I found her. Mom frowned. I found her. Facial recognition software. She's Elizabeth Washington. She taught music in Georgia. What do you know about her? I'd thought I knew all Mom's stories, but now there was so much more to know and so little time left. Elizabeth Washington? Mom stared at the picture and whispered the name. Then she dropped the tablet onto the bed and lay back against her pillow. Maya, all I know was that my father had loved her. When I saw that picture, I realized I could rewrite history for him and for me. I could make her my mother, the mother I'd always wanted, a wonderful mother. I named her Jen after the neighbor who'd given me the art lessons Margaret refused to pay for and who told me I had talent. Her courage came from the ship captain who mentored me on the first migration. Her generosity is from Cece. I got all those great recipes and the story of the rowboat from Nina, my first roommate on Shinshin. While Mom was telling the story, my dad and Cece had slipped into the small room. Dad caught sight of the tablet with the photo of Grandpa Peter and Grandma Jen, and his eyebrows rose. Grandma Jen is one of your mother's finest creations, he said. So he'd known. 
Mom leaned her fragile body against him. Her dark eyes were bright with tears. Maya, for me, your Grandma Jen was not just real. She was essential. She changed my life. She made yours possible. The cramped room spun. I didn't know what to think. Grandma Jen had become a stranger. My real grandmother, I opened my mouth to ask about the fire, but I closed it again. Mom was falling asleep. As I slipped from the room, Cece caught my arm. It's tomorrow, she whispered. I pulled away, mumbling that I needed to study for an exam. That was true, but instead of going straight back to the dorm, I took a long way through the station's corridors. I walked close to the grimy, familiar walls, afraid that Colleen's artificial gravity I'd grown up trusting might prove as unreliable as my ties to Earth, fearing, as I never had before, the cold and airless world where I'd been born. The next evening, my mother asked for the injection. With all of us gathered in the room and a recording of her favorite Beethoven sonata playing, Dad slipped a hypodermic into a vein. She took three, maybe four, shallow breaths, and then Mom was gone. Her ashes would be wrapped in fragile earth-made fabric, taken out onto the frozen surface of Ceres, and placed in the colony's communal grave for pioneers. Ma, you can refuse. I asked them not to tell you about this when your mom was so ill. Dad sat on the bench beside me, looking over my shoulder as I opened the tablet and read the message. I gasped. They were offering me a permanent assignment to Charbonneau Colony on Vesta, I'd always thought they'd send me to Pallas or Hygeia, never imagining I'd qualify for the agricultural engineering team at Charbonneau. Mom, <laughs> Mom would have been thrilled. I felt tears start to burn, but shook them away. I think it's too soon for you, Dad said. Unfortunately, the freighter will be packed and ready to go by the end of the week, and this is the closest stairs will be to Vesta for seventeen years. I nodded, my eyes still fixed on the message. Permanent assignment, Charbonneau. I'd only have three days to pack and say goodbye to Dad and Cece and Ricky and nearly everyone I knew on Shinshin. Three of us from Shinshin First Gen would leave on the freighter sunrise and travel 930 miles to join the agricultural engineering team at Charbonneau. We'd live on Vesta for the rest of our lives. I thought of Mom again. She'd left Earth to build the first colony, she'd understand. And Grandma Jen, she'd but now I knew there was no Grandma Jen. Confused, I shook my head. So I think it surprised Dad when I turned to him and said, I'll go. The words sounded so small, so flat and empty. But once I said them, they set in motion a whole new story. Dad and I hugged without words. I walked slowly back to the dorm, trying to imagine my life on Vesta, living with strangers, creating a family with some of them, new foods, a new religious system. Some of the parents were worried about that. A quasi-military system of government stricter than the democracy we'd maintained in Shinshin. I frowned as I recalled that data access on Vesta was rumored to be far less liberal than on Ceres. If I wanted to find out more about Elizabeth or Margaret, I'd have to do it now. To my surprise, Dad got me official access to the restricted Earth files. I was able to read the news story I'd glimpsed before. Palo Alto woman convicted of arson. Margaret Dumpster had set her family's house on fire. Everyone had escaped unharmed. A small, blurry photo showed a pale, frightened woman. To my relief, she looked nothing like my mom. I would never know why Grandpa Peter had married her, but now I understood why my mother had replaced the broken world of her childhood with the fantasy of Grandma Jen. 
I found real estate records for Elizabeth Washington in Atlanta, Georgia, and a review of a concert she'd given. One of that pieces she'd played was Mom's favorite Beethoven sonata. I pressed my fingertips to the screen, as if I could reinforce that connection between the two of them, but it was as thin and wishful as my own ties to earth. Had Elizabeth Washington married? Had children? My searches came up empty. and knew as much as I would ever know. Now I was truly ready to go. The inside cabin Leah, Jinx, and I were assigned on the sunrise proved to be cramped and stuffy, the banks narrow and hard. We complained at great length that first night, so none of us would be tempted to talk about home and the families and friends we were leaving. At last, I crawled under the thin blankets, exhausted, but too excited to sleep. I thought of Mom, and the many times she'd soothe me to sleep with her stories. In the dark cabin, I began to tell my own story. Like Grandma Jen, I'm rowing a boat. I'm not alone. There are people in the boat with me, my friends, and someday my children. I envision a boy and girl, their faces pale with worry. They sit facing me, their hands gripping the seat. To pass the time, I tell them stories of Ceres and Earth and their families, stories both real and fantastic. I feel the polished wood of oars against my palms. Each stroke I take sends the light of the stars around us rippling through the black of space. Almost home. I was drifting off to sleep. Almost home. I'll get you there. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is KG. KG, thank you so much. And Farah, a big, huge thank you. That is lovely. Thank you so much indeed. So now it is our very own, yes, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back at genre history. Ames, me girl. Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I'd like to talk about this year's Retrospective Hugo Awards, or Retro Hugos. The Retro Hugos were added to the ballot beginning in 1996. They were originally conceived of as awards optionally given by any Worldcon, that's World Science Fiction Convention, for works that would have been eligible 50, 75, or 100 years ago when a Worldcon was not held. But in 2017, uh, the rule changed, the criteria was expanded to be any year after 1913 in which no Hugo Awards were awarded, whether or not there was a Worldcon that year. In short, this means 15 years in total, 1939 to 1952 and 1954. Worldcon 76 and Dublin 2019 then jointly announced that the Retro Hugos would be awarded last year for 1943, and this year for 1944. So next month, August, the winners will be announced at Dublin 2019, this year's Worldcon. Now, looking over the lists of finalists for the 1944 Retro Hugo Awards, lots of good stuff. I notice there's quite a lot of Fritz Leiber Jr., including two different novels for the best novel category, two very different novels, The Gothic Conjure Wife and The Dystopian Gathered Darkness. There's quite a lot of works across several different categories by C.L. Moore, always good to see her, um, both alone and with her husband, Henry Kuttner, and also some Henry Kuttner on his own. Lot of 
Lee Brackett across several categories as well. And a couple of other works of fiction that jumped out at me. The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft, up for Best Novella. And King of the Grey Spaces, also known as R is for Rocket by Ray Bradbury, for the Best Short Story Award. Another short story that caught my eye that is a finalist is Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper by Robert Block. And you may recall that I talked about that story in my three-part series, Science Fiction Meets Jack the Ripper, which ran in episodes 304, 307, and 312. So good to see some interesting stories there, and also wanted to nod to those authors who really dominated 1943. But the category I'd like to spend some time with is Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form, because it struck me that, wow, there is quite a lot of diversity in the genre and styles of these films that are finalists. Just very, very different works. Now, before I dive headlong into the finalist list for Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form, I should mention that when I first thought of works in 1943 that would be eligible for the 1944 Retro Hugos, my mind immediately went to two films that aren't actually eligible for the long-form category because of their length. They are short-form works, and in fact, both of them ended up on the finalist list, so I thought I would quickly mention them. They are both produced by Val Luton, who probably should get his own segment here one of these days. I am a big Val Luton fan. The two works that came to mind are, number one, a movie that if you haven't seen, I do recommend, I Walked with a Zombie, a 1943 American horror film. It was directed by Jacques Tourneur and starred James Ellison, Francis D., and Tom Conway. The story follows a nurse who travels to care for the sick wife of a sugar plantation owner in the Caribbean, and there she encounters all kinds of supernatural goings-on, like The Walking Dead, Voodoo, you name it. The screenplay is based on an article of the same name by Inez Wallace, but it's also a reinterpretation or reworking or reimagining of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. It was the second horror film producer Val Luton created for RKO Pictures. And the second film, also from Val Luton, is The Seventh Victim. This was an American horror film noir, and it was directed by Mark Robson, and starred Tom Conway, Gene Brooks, Isabel Jewell, Kim Hunter, and Hugh Beaumont. Now, it was written by DeWitt Bodine and Charles O'Neill. O'Neill wrote a murder mystery, right? It was about a woman hunted by a serial killer in California. But Bodine revised the script, and he brought the spice. The spice being a satanic society in New York City. So in the end, what you have is a young woman who stumbles on a cult of devil worshippers in Greenwich Village in New York City. And yes, it's also very much worth seeing. The other films in the short form category, Beyond I Walk with a Zombie and The Seventh Victim, both from RKO Radio Pictures, 
are The Ape Man from Banner Productions, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman from Universal Pictures, Der Führer's Face from Disney, and Super Rabbit from Warner Brothers. Okay, on to the main course. Let's talk about Best Dramatic Presentation Long Form. The first finalist is really a historic work. It's Batman, or The Batman, which was a 1943 black-and-white 15-chapter theatrical serial from Columbia Pictures. This is the very first appearance on film of Batman. Batman only first appeared a few years earlier in Detective Comics number 27 in May 1939. And Lewis Wilson portrayed Batman while Douglas Croft portrayed his sidekick, Robin. The villain in this serial is an original character named Dr. Daka, who is a secret agent of the Japanese imperial government, and he is backed up by traitorous American henchmen. This is 1943, remember. Besides being the first film adaptation of Batman, there are also a couple of important firsts that come from this serial. It created a kind of permanent part of uh, Batman's mythos, that is the Batcave, and its secret entrance through a grandfather clock inside Wayne Manor. Also, it's worth pointing out that Alfred, the butler, was portrayed previously in the comics as a kind of portly gentleman. But after William Austin portrayed him in the serial, he became trim and he sported a signature thin mustache. Okay, now for something completely different. We've gone from the Batman serial to a musical, Cabin in the Sky, directed by Vincente Minnelli and Busby Berkeley for MGM. It stars Ethel Waters, Eddie Rochester Anderson, and the immortal Lena Horne, that is Horn's first and only leading role in an MGM musical. We also see Louis Armstrong in the film, and Duke Ellington and his orchestra have a showcase musical number. This is a film about a no-good guy, Little Joe, who is killed over gambling debts by a big shot named Domino Johnson before he can really redeem himself and his life. But on his deathbed, he seems to be restored to life by angels and given six months to turn things around and become worthy of entering heaven. Now, I will go ahead and spoil the film for you because the film is more about the music and the spectacle than it is about the plot. Um, at the end, he wakes up, and in fact, he had not been killed. This was all a dream and he has the chance to genuinely reform and begin a new and happy life. I point this out mainly to show that this is not quite as supernatural as it sounds. It ends up just being a fever dream, a figment of the imagination. In fact, this whole life, death, and afterlife thing is a running theme in several of these films. The next, A Guy Named Joe by MGM, directed by Victor Fleming, starring Spencer Tracy, Irene Dunn, and Van Johnson, was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing Original Story. 
It was Van Johnson's first major role. And it became remade later on in 1989 by Steven Spielberg as the film Always, with Richard Dreyfuss, Holly Hunter, and John Goodman, although Always updates the story. The original story is a World War II story about a fighter pilot who goes down with his plane, and after the fiery crash, he, he says, either I'm dead or I'm crazy, and he's told, you're not crazy. So... You can see where that goes. Ultimately, the, he is given his afterlife assignment to be sent back to Earth where he can pass on his experience and knowledge to others who are going to be pilots or are pilots. Steven Spielberg would update this to a 1989 setting exchanging World War II for the idea of aerial firefighting. So once again, you have this story about pilots. And no, it's not a dream. The next film on the list, Heaven Can Wait, 20th Century Fox, is a comedy, much less tear-jerky than the last. And wow, did it go places. It was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Picture. It starred Gene Tierney, Don Amici, and Charles Coburn. And the idea was that a man was having to recount his life story to prove that he belonged in hell. Yeah, it's going to be one of those kinds of stories. Now, while we're on a comedy train, well, something kind of different here. Munchausen, a 1943 fantasy comedy that was created as, well, Nazi propaganda. Minister Joseph Goebbels ordered the production of this film to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the UFA Film Studio, which released it. Now, this was part of a kind of style, a Volksfilm style, propaganda designed to essentially take people's minds away from the war, to be pure escapist entertainment. And in a sense, it was drawing from the same ideas as the Hollywood genre of large budget productions, extensive, colorful visuals, the, you know, Busby musical numbers that were just pure spectacle. Same idea. Sidestepping political issues and then bringing up these gorgeous images of, in this case, an ageless sort of pastoral Germany. Well, that was all good as far as uh, they were concerned. And so this fantasy comedy about the German nobleman who was first introduced in the 1785 book Baron Munchausen's narrative of his marvelous travels and campaigns in Russia, it is still considered today by some film historians, despite its origin, as being one of the greatest German color films of all time. And it has been both a commercial and critical success then and now. FYI, you can find the entire film complete with English subtitles on YouTube. And now to the last film on the list... I will confess, this is what I have seen many, many times. I went through a phase when I was young that I watched this a lot. This is, in fact, the only universal horror film to win an Oscar for art direction and cinematography. 
This is The Phantom of the Opera, directed by Arthur Lubin and starring Nelson Eddy, Susanna Foster, and as the Phantom himself, Claude Rains. The film takes cues from Gaston Leroux's 1910 novel and from the 1925 Lon Chaney film adaptation. In fact, it reuses the replica of the Opera Garnier interior that was created for that earlier film. But this is its own film. The storyline is somewhat revised and reimagined. There isn't the masked ball sequence, although there is the rather famous falling of the chandelier moment, and that's pretty elaborate. And there is, as you might imagine, both from the opera, part of Phantom of the Opera, and the fact that Nelson Eddy and Susanna Foster were in it, a lot of singing, a lot of music. As a little girl, I found this all very bright and beautiful and romantic and overwhelming in the best possible way, as a sort of multi-sensual delight with the sound and the color and the staging. But one thing that does most definitely hold up as I go back and look at it again is Claude Rains. He had the voice and the physicality to really work behind the mask as a character. And he does have the chance to be, of course, without the mask a bit as well. And the tragedy of his character plays out, I think, quite compellingly. So I have spent <laughs> a lot of time watching and rewatching Universal horror films. And despite the fact I've spent a lot of time with them, I think probably if you were to add up all of my viewings, just thanks to my 11-year-old and younger self, Phantom of the Opera will probably come out as the universal horror film I've watched the most times. And there you have it, my friends. Musical comedy, musical tragedy. Comedy, tragedy. Life after death, maybe. And Batman. Very different films. I hope you enjoyed a whirlwind tour there of the dramatic presentations, long form, for the Retro Hugos. The winner will be decided, as I said, next month, and or at least announced and honored next month, in August at Dublin 2019, this year's Worldcon. And I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different, when again we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. It is an honour and a pleasure to have you on, madam. Thank you indeed. So that is today's show. I hope you have enjoyed it. That is, what number was it? <laughs> 596, tucked up and put to bed. Fantastic. Big thank you to everyone who's kind of come over a little bit of a surge on Patreon. That was awfully nice, awfully nice. And for everyone that kind of just upped their pledge as well. I don't know what I said or did, but thank you indeedy. That was amazing. So, that's it. I'm out of here until next week. Just like to say, good night from me. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Transmissions I'm hooning, waiting to be found
pockets and pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. Time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. I wanna talk to you. Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by. 